Okay, so um, at the top of both outlines, it should say Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity Series. So that's what we've been doing. And just to refresh our memories, this is actually, is this the fourth year we've been doing this? Because last year we did uh, element five, which is restoring the, the scriptures for the whole year. So the year before that, we did elements three and four, and the year before that, one and two. So you should have a, uh, if, if you have last week's outline, it should say um, emphasis one, loving God, and emphasis two, grace upon grace versus performance base. And if you recall, we only got through like emphasis 1A and 1B. So I'm going to uh, I'm gonna be forced because I don't want to spend the whole semester just reviewing what we've done when we still have uh, we still have 10 more emphasis to get through and I'm hoping to finish this series by the end of next school year. Um, so I'm just going to hit uh, remind us of a few things on emphasis 1. What I've done there is you can you can look up all those scriptures, but what I'm trying to help you understand is that loving God, what it means to love God, has become a very confused and uh, ambivalent and muddled idea in modern Christianity. But the Bible's very clear on what it means to love God. And, you know, uh, I like to joke, hey, Jeff, I like to joke that, you know, when you've been married for a long time and you tell your wife uh, you love her, she might say, yeah, if you love me, why don't you get a job? Or, you know, <laughs> or, or why, why, you know who knows? What may, why don't you remember that the Wednesday night is trash night or something? <laughs> yeah, just put one at every, at every seat. So. Um, So, um, lost my train of thought here. So, anyway, loving God biblically has a great deal of definition. And that's kind of important because I think anyone who's uh, gone through grade school, junior high, and junior high romances, all the way up to today's marriages. A lot of people are actually saying that part of the problem with why we have such a high divorce rate is people are kind of entering marriage with the same kind of approach that you date in seventh grade. You know, like it's a very childish, what's in it for me, uh, very feely, touchy, uh, shallow thing. And so, you know, they actually, they actually say that more and more people are practicing serial marriage where they get married two, three, four, five, six, seven times in life. And that, you know, marriage means uh, today to most people uh, what, it, what you meant by going steady in sixth grade. You know, who, who wants to study with lots of girls in sixth grade or, or the opposite sex if you were... I did. <laughs> I want to study with more than one girl at a time in sixth grade. <laughs> Until I got caught by two best friends. I, I made them promise not to tell each other. But You know, in other words, so many people are relating to life like, like some childish thing you do in sixth grade. You know, in seventh grade, I sent a new school record by asking over 300 girls to go study in one day. But, and people are like approaching adulthood these kinds of ways you know, in our culture. And so, 
um, loving has become something that uh, most people don't know that much about. So I would really encourage you to spend some time looking at those five emphases, 1A through 1E, and reading the scriptures on them to put some context into what it means to be a follower of Christ and a lover of God. In other words, you can actually say, God, give me uh, tools to measure my love for you. You know, if anyone, uh, you know, Adam and John Luke and I and Stephen and others remodeled our church building this year, and we used lots of tools. You got to have tape measures and you know, obviously there's lots of things, you know, you have temperature gauges and all sorts of things to measure your reality, right? And um, so um, some of the things that I want to remind us of in terms of loving God, that loving God should, should include some zeal and some passion. Like, are you just kind of ho-hum about what you think it means to love God? Or is it something that really consumes you? Remember when Jesus chased the money uh, changers out of the temple? It describes him as a, using a quote from Psalm um, 69.9 that says, Zeal for thy house will consume me. Like when, when uh, did you actually get mad on behalf of God and not for any kind of childish or selfish reasons? When did you have a God-centered anger management issue instead of... Uh, instead of like for personal. But it's very possible to love God so much that you get mad at what he gets mad at and you uh, get rejoiced in what he gets rejoiced. Remember in Matthew 11 where it says, at this time Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Lord and said, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes. You know, so he actually got excited about what his father was excited about. You know, uh, the shortest verse in the Bible. Who knows the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So why did he weep? Because he had human emotions. Okay. Anything else? That's good. Human emotions. That's kind of part of it. Let's get more of it. Then Lazarus died. Why did Why did he care that Lazarus died? Right. So, you know, most people would, on the surface, you might say it's very clear that Jesus has a very special kind of relationship with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, who are brother, sister, and sister. And so, obviously, there's a level at which he cries because of his feeling the pain of Martha and Mary. But if you really think about it and, put, and read the whole context carefully and really, you know, at, in, against the backdrop of understanding all the Gospels, he mostly cried for what Sam just said. Like, it, deep down, like, it was never meant to be this way. Death was something that happened with man's sin. Death was never a part of God's original intention. All deaths are grievous. You know, when Paul is talking to Christians in 1 Thessalonians 4, about how we can have hope when someone that, like, when, you know, I've uh, uh, both had the, the joy of having uh, people in my life and family that were very deep and close to God uh, pass away. And I've had the opposite experience of people who uh, were atheists pass away. You know, I had one brother who died that loved God and one brother who died that thought Christianity was the source of the world's evils. 
and uh, he was a college professor with you know universal admiration there's there's a tree with a plaque planted right in the center of Bowling Green campus honoring his great achievements and uh, he hated Christ and Christians so when he died that was obviously a, a devastating thing for me compared to my other brother who loved God and prayed for me to become a Christian whole different thing right so put some context in loving God and enjoying God zeal passion fire does your life does your life and your schedule uh, reflect that you have a lot of zeal and passion are you I, I would think as a Christian you should always have some scheduling problems like I just can't get it all in, <laughs> right? Because there's so much that I want to enjoy and do and, and, and be a part of with God that, that, that I could use 27 hours every day, right? Yeah, or 30, right? <laughs> and even that wouldn't be enough, of course. It's a, always amazing to me how many Christians have, have sort of motivation problems. If you have motivation problems, don't beat yourself up, but go to God and say, Lord, help save me from this. You should be passionate for God, zealous, intense. Uh, moving down, intimacy and spiritual experience. And let's go to 1D. I just want to comment on a couple of these things. The whole thing of discipleship or, or following. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Do you, is, if, if you were to step back and think about your motivations, your attitudes, your schedule, your practices can you say that a big part of what you're doing and why you're doing it is so that you can be part of a corporate expression of the body of Christ that fishes for men better in other words that really motivates what I do in life like I'm memorizing scriptures and studying apologetics and getting to know the whole Bible and I'm working on my character and my financial priorities and all kind of things in my real life reflect that God has called the body of Christ to be fishers of men. Would your, if you really thought about what you're working toward in your heart, and you'll know because you'd be obsessing about it a little. You know, I've struggled with my weight and been a yo-yo dieter all my life. And I, I always, I've read all kinds of stuff about dieting and nutrition and so forth. And I always love the ones that say when you're, when you're doing that, like, only weigh yourself once a week so you don't become uh, discouraged. And I always say, only weigh yourself once an hour so you can become obsessed about it. <laughs> you know? Like, you're not going to achieve something that you don't get a little obsessive about. You know, when I was in college, I was obsessive about not getting any Bs. And if it meant that I had to study on my knees late at night so I wouldn't fall asleep so that I wouldn't get a B, I, that's what I would do. Now, I'm probably not the average person, I guess, but I, study, I studied on my knees a lot in college so that I wouldn't fall asleep. Because if I fell asleep, I might get a B. <laughs> you know, like, are you, like when it comes to loving God, are you obsessing a little bit about becoming a better fisher of men? Could you, uh, if God brought a Hindu into your life, could you walk him through into Christian maturity all the way? If God brought a secular humanist or an atheist or an evolutionist in your life, can you uh, help him see? Can you be used of God to open his eyes or her eyes? 
how seriously like people who have you ever met someone who's like really obsessed about fishing i'm i'm not that's not my culture you know where they like have to have they're always what what if you're obsessed about fishing what do they have they have fishing magazines right then they go to fishing stores and they're always buying like equipment and poles and waders and i don't even know any of that world but i you know right because you do like your life will express a little bit about what you're into right and you know could people tell that um you know the second commandment is to love others as yourself right jesus summarized all the second half of the commandments do you have a realistic uh approach to be a part of a people that's setting people free from human suffering that's what a church is supposed to be doing we're supposed to be reconciling people to god discipling them making their life whole bringing health healing deliverance uh, is that something you're planning to take a greater and greater role in and are you taking the steps to do that and are you a little bit obsessive about that are you like I've got a plan today to, I'm going to memorize 10 scriptures a week that I can use in ministry. Or, you know, I'm going to read one book on apologetics every month until I can lead every kind of different person to Christ. Does that make sense? All right, so I'm going to, then lastly is the thing of obedience. Like, we've kind of just divorced loving God from obedience. I think we think loving God might be how enthusiastically we worship. And I'm all for worshiping enthusiastically. But is that really how you measure? No, Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Like, what you do when you're by yourself, like, does anyone... Do you really need someone to help you stay on schedule with your Bible reading? Or is that something that, you know, you've worked out before God and you follow it? Or whatever, you know, like, is your life reflect uh, obedience to Christ? So all that leads to uh, what I'm hoping you will see is that um, it's not difficult to love God. It's impossible right remember uh in mark 10 what do the disciples say to jesus in mark 10 after he tells them that they have to forgive their brother up to seven times seven 70 times seven and so forth what what what's their response do you remember weren't they stunned into silence no they said something back to him uh look in mark 10 if you i mean i'm telling you where you can cheat for the answer if you want (laughs) i mean it's an open book test (laughs) Right, so if, if it's like that, then who could be saved? Like, they're saying, Jesus, the things you're saying are impossible. That, you know, you ever feel like that before, God? What you're calling me to is just outrageously impossible, right? Hopefully uh, my sermons have that effect on you. <laughs> uh, you know, they say, uh, they say soft preaching leads to hard hearts, and hard preaching leads to soft hearts. Like, are you really, do you go somewhere to hear the word in a way that you're going to be really challenged? Like, do you, like at the end of the sermon, do you ever like go, woe is me? I would suggest if you don't, you're probably in the wrong church. Like you should, at the end of the sermon, you could go like, wow, that's way out of, that's impossible. 
That's what the disciples were saying to Jesus. And what did Jesus say? With men? Say, who's saying it? With men it's impossible. Finish the sentence. Yeah, but all things are possible with God. It, you know, like, so I'm not going to revisit grace because we're doing that at 9.30 Sunday morning. We're kind of revisiting a shorter version of the, our longer series called Grace Upon Grace. And we're doing it Thursday nights at Cedarville. So we just have how many of the Cedarville people do we have? Josiah and Chris. Uh, where's Teresa? Does anyone know where Teresa is tonight? She's probably tired of hearing this stuff. No, I'm just All right. So um, we're not going to go over the rest of Emphasis 2 and review that. But, uh, again, Emphasis 1 and 2 we did in the fall, I believe, of 2015, right? And then uh, Emphasis 3, which we're going to try to review tonight, we did in the spring semester of 2016, yeah, because last year would have been 16 and 17, right? Last year we did emphasis. So, F, yeah, last in the fall of 2016, we did emphasis three. In the spring of 2016, we did emphasis four, which we'll review next week. And then uh, two weeks from now, we'll review one week or so on emphasis five, which we did all of last year. And then by then, for the rest of this year, we'll get into the, the new stuff, you know. Uh, hopefully this, you know, there's lots of people here who weren't part of those Bible studies who haven't heard this at all, and, and I think anyone who has heard this knows that reviewing it's helpful, right? So let's get into, um, emphasis three was on the church, and emphasis four was on uh, how the church raises up leadership. And one of the things I, again, want to just postulate is we don't always go about these things very biblical, uh, for instance, we raise up leadership in our day and age by sending someone to seminary, and then uh, we make them a professional hiring, right? But in the New Testament, how were people raised up? They were actually raised up by being a part of a local church, and as they were part of the local church, God began to use them in various ways, and the church recognized that. Uh, no, it's quite clear from a, if you read the whole New Testament that they often people traveled from one church to another, and they actually had because Paul says, do, you know, he's when he's defending his ministry in Second Corinthians, the whole the whole letter of Second Corinthians is Paul has started the Corinthian church, and he uh, these guys have come in and said Paul's not the real deal. You should quit listening to him and listen to us. And so Paul is trying the whole Second Corinthian letter. He's trying to say, I am the real deal. In fact, I'm the one who started the church, and you guys should be listening to me. And so one of the things he says is, do we need letters of recommendation? In other words, like if you were, if Morgan was going to travel to a church in Columbus, she would actually uh, have to have letters from the elders of the church in Dayton saying, hey, she's really a Christian. She's not there. She's not a Roman spy there to arrest you. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, uh, you know, can can she be trusted? You know, she, she's just after your money. No, uh, <laughs> she's becoming a televangelist. No. <laughs> uh, no, so, yeah, they, they traveled from church to church, and there was ways, you know, remember when it talks about Apollos want, uh, after Priscilla and Aquila straightened him out and helped him understand things better, 
he was desirous to go across the uh, the uh, the Achaean Sea or the Aegean Sea to Achaia into Corinth, right? And they encouraged him to go, and they told the church when he, to receive him when he gets there, right? So, all right, let's get into uh, emphasis three: the church as community of the King. Now, the study of the church, the fancy Greek word for it is ecclesiology. Does anyone know where that comes from? Ecclesia. And when Jesus uses that word twice in Matthew. Does anyone know where? I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church in Matthew 16. And there's one other reference to the church in Matthew. To that, using that word to describe the church, there's many word pictures. There's many words that describe the church in the New Testament, but the word ecclesia, or church, is used by Jesus twice in Matthew. Where he's chasing around the temple and says, "I can rebuild the temple in three days." No. Uh, when he's when he's talking about if your brother sins, oh, you know it. Go ahead. If your brother sins, reprove him in private. He says, "If he listens to you, you've won your brother." In other words, the goal is not to win the argument; it's to win the relationship. That'll change a lot of things, right? Think about it. Bring that to your family, of course. Bring that to, to our relationships. Like, the goal is never to win the argument. People who get divorced, people who have troubles in their marriage, people who have animosity in their families, people who can't get along, it's because there's still some pride in them that wants to win the argument. If you can get to a place of Christian maturity where all that you care about is winning the relationship, that's the whole that's what Jesus is telling us to do basically right that's a whole different thing right and so he says if your brother listens to you you've won the relationship you've won your brother in other words you've restored that brotherly relationship but if he doesn't listen to you what are you to do yeah take two or three witnesses that can be very helpful for instance if four guys are living in a single brother's household like we have in you know, sometimes there's conflict, right? And sometimes one guy will think it's all, you're all faults, <laughs> not me, right? And usually if it gets to be a consistent pattern that one guy thinks I'm not to blame and the other three guy thinks you are, that usually tells you a lot right there, right? So again, winning, learning, winning, the, take two or three others because you're trying to win the brother. It's not about being right or holding his feet to the fire that he did his chores or whatever. It's about like helping him in terms of who he's becoming. You know, you're always becoming something, right? And in Christ, we're to care a lot about who, <coughs> what, are, what are you becoming? And what can I do to help you become more like Christ wants you to be? How can I help you get more healed emotionally, mentally? How can I let, help you grow? Yeah, how can I serve the bigger interest of your life? So, hello, Stephen. Hey. Man, I'm cold. You didn't happen to grab a shirt. I didn't have any shirts in the car, did I? Yeah. It's okay. I'll, I'll just stuff it out. I'll drink more coffee, I guess. I'm just cold today. All right, so then what does he say? What happens if you take two or three brothers with you and he doesn't listen to them? No. Somebody said it. Saying, yeah, then you take them to the elders of the church. With the assumption being like what you're supposed to have is you're supposed to have some people in the church 
that are designated as being the most mature and responsible and knowledgeable and wise and humble and they're and they should should be recognized in many cases officially through a process where they're ordained as elders and deacons and so forth right and what if he doesn't listen to the elders No, not really. But that's what most people interpret that to mean, and that's exactly what I want to get at, that it doesn't mean that. It says, let him be to you as a tax gatherer or sinner. Now, how are we supposed to, how do we relate to people outside the church? Yeah, we're trying to win them, not kick them out. So that's been one of the problems is that most Christians have too shallowly interpreted the scripture instead of studying it deeply and thought when Jesus says, if he doesn't listen to the elders of the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer and a sinner. Let him, let him be to an outsider. And how do we relate to the outsiders? We're trying to set them free. We're trying to help them. We're trying to help them become, uh, to be reconciled to God. So like if a brother or sister got to that point, you know, when you run into them at the grocery store, you could, you should say, instead of going like turning, you know, like not talking to them, you might say, you know, I'm praying for you that God will grant you repentance. I'm praying for you that you'll get it right with God. I sure hope you will. I miss you. See how that's a different thing? You know, there's a saying that I hope you all memorize that I that I have that I, I don't remember who I learned it from. But oh, Charles Simpson, I learned this from a guy named Charles Simpson. Maturity is to be redemptive in every situation. Like we're really good in our sinful human nature from the time. Like you have two little sons, and they're already good at fighting sometimes, right? <laughs> no one had to teach them. Like they both mastered the concept of mine, right? <laughs> you didn't have to disciple them for years in mine, right? Now sharing, you're still working on, right? <laughs> you, yours and sharing, that's a little harder lesson, right? And, uh, and of course, you know, we learn how to fight and we learn how to build the walls easily, right? But learning how to restore relationships, that's a different thing. And maturity is to always be doing that. So anyway, that's the other place that Jesus says, uses the word church, tell it to the church. In that process, there's a, there's a place at which you have to tell it to the church. You have to say, you know, uh, little Levi won't share his ball with Carson. So, so, so little light Levi's in timeout until he learns to share his ball with Carson. <laughs> Sometimes you have to tell the whole, like you might have to go tell the toddlers, ministers, no, don't let Levi steal the ball from Carson. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. But, uh, you know, sometimes you have to tell the whole church. <laughs> All right. Let's get into this. So emphasis 3A was the church in word pictures. Um, so here's what I want. Uh, hopefully you all know this. This we One of the things we try to help you with in Grace Christian Fellowship, hopefully you're reading the whole Bible on some kind of regular schedule. Maybe you read the Old Testament uh, every two years. I would recommend you don't read the Old Testament any less than every two years. 
And I would recommend you don't read the New Testament any less than every year. But if you step back and take a long-range picture, even if you read that minimal amount of Bible where you're only reading the New Testament once a year and the Old Testament every two years, if you think about it, what would happen over a while? Over 10 or so years, you would read the New Testament 10 times and the Old Testament five times. Now, most people in this room, with the exception of Jeff and myself, are well under 40, right? Anybody over 35 besides Jeff and me? Nobody's over 35. Anybody over, yeah, all right. Uh, uh, who's the oldest between Sam and Steven? You're, you're how old? 30. Bradbury, you're 31 or two? I don't know if you're under the bus. You'll be 33. Sam, you're like 28, right? So, um, that means uh, as long as Bradbury keeps his workouts out up and eats his protein bars and so forth, he probably has another 55 years to walk with God. So taking a little, like in America, we're all about instant coffee, instant everything, right? We don't want to we don't want to wait for marriage, you know. We don't want to wait for this, that, the other thing, right? We want to get a car before we save up for it. It's called credit, right? Credit's the way you get stuff when you don't really want to go through the right process of saving for it, right? There's all kind of ways to cut corners in, in America. But, uh, you know, um, the, the long-term approach. What it, so most people in this room are going to walk with God for at least 50 more years. Think about that. Now, doesn't it seem reasonable that spending five or ten years of really getting to know the scriptures would be a great thing to do? You know, uh, because what kind of character and foundations you build is going to take go, take you a long way. Right? All right, so... One of the things we try to do in Grace Christian Fellowship is we try, if you provide the, the I'm going to read the whole Bible program, we want to help provide how to understand it. So I'm going to give you some things here that's very important. The Bible has about four different ways that it talks. In other words, the Bible is different kinds of literature. So I want everyone to grasp that point. The Bible is not... Uh, you know, like you wouldn't read um, a chemistry book the same way you'd read uh, Marvel comics. Right? There's different... What's that? Not enough pictures in the chemistry book, probably. Um, you know, different kinds of literature require different kinds of understanding and approaches. So I want to go through four kinds of ways the Bible gives us uh, literature. First is didactic. Who knows what we mean by didactic? There's a definition right on the page, but who can say it? Bob Timer, tell us what didactic means. Yeah, clearly taught, straightforward, uh, morals, ethics, facts, things like that, right? Doctrines. So uh, uh, who's... who's uh, Read the definition I have there, will you, Bruce? Or uh, Grant, I mean. Read the definition I have there on emphasis 3A there. Uh, 
for didactic. Didactic uh, scriptures, straightforward or plain language teaching, doctrines, statements that contain theological, moral, or exhortative instructions to which aesthetic and literary considerations are subordinated. 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 In other words, okay, like we were talking when we first came in about different authors we like, and we like authors that have, you know, aesthetic word pictures and stuff. I like John Steinbeck, even though he's thoroughly anti-Christian. There's a monument to him in Red Square in Moscow. You know, like he was about as anti-Christian and pro-communist as it gets, yet he was a great writer who, who really tapped into human emotion and so forth, but you know, like the way he describes things, it's, uh, I really like it, right? He was one of my favorite authors. So what does exhortative instruction mean? What is an exhortative instruction? Just so I'm sure we all know the vocabulary. It's not that hard, somebody, come on. If I'm gonna exhort you, what, what might I exhort you to do? Like I might exhort you to get better grades or to not leave your room so messy or <laughs> or be on, don't miss Tuesday nights, or don't be late, or whatever. Ex exhortative instructions, right? It's not just corrective, but it's... Um, restorative? Yeah, yeah, it's challenging. That, who said challenging? That's a good word. Challenging. All right. Now, uh, so the Bible has plenty of didactic literature. Now, let me tell you something. Most of you who, if you are raised in any kind of fundamentalist or evangelical kind of Christianity, you've mostly been taught to approach the Bible as didactic teaching and to think that's the most important scripture. So, you know, there's actually a, a type of Christian called Pauline dispensationalists who actually think that only Paul's exhortative didactic writings are are important and we shouldn't even put that much weight on any of the rest of the Bible, including what Jesus had to say. <laughs> Seriously, there, those, that, that idea is very strong out there. Now, historical narrative. Uh, so what's historical narrative, Chris, like? Well, the, the, actually, the statement there is not really tells you what historical narrative. You could read it, but it's not right. <laughs> it's not exactly what you need to be saying here. It's just telling the events how it happened. Yeah, explaining the events, how it historically happened. Right? And you're telling a story, but it's not just a fictional story. It's a, a biographically accurate and historically accurate story. So, the, the, you know, for instance, the Gospels have an element of biography and an element of history. But certainly you could say the story of Jesus at the wedding of Cana, but what we need to differentiate is that when, when we talked last year about the modernist versus the fundamentalist, the modernists approach it as if it's, uh, as if they're physical stories, or I mean, they're fictional stories, I have to say, right? And we, the Bible doesn't present this, the stories as fictional. Yet, God is so sovereign, he's so providential, he's so involved in human affairs that the actual events that happen tell a story. So we could talk about the story of, of God raising up David, the story of David and Goliath, or the story of Saul's hatred for David and throwing a spear to try to pit him against the wall. 
Uh, I guess that fellowship meeting didn't go that well. But, uh, <laughs> uh, right? Or David's cutting off the edge of Saul's robe or whatever, right? But, these, but historical narrative is a very important concept. The Bible doesn't present these things like fiction, right? Now, what's important about that is um, God has an eternal plan that's revealed in Scripture, that I call his eternal decrees. In other words, he's, it's not just that he, like Byron has plans, some of which we'll, we hope and we pray for will work out. But some of his plans probably aren't going to work out, right? Like his car, like maybe he's planning for his car to last 10 more years and it's going to die in five more years, right? We can't always control these things, right? Who's ever had plans that didn't quite come about you? Like, well, I was planning for better. <laughs> you know, I was planning to get an A on that test and not a C. But <laughs> right? We often have plans that aren't quite going to happen, right? Anybody, you know, like, you know, some young ladies have a man for their plan. No, and some young men have a, a lady for their plan. But, but, you know, I, there's a. Uh, some Christians I knew uh, 30 or 40 years ago where the young man said to the young lady, uh, I feel like God is calling me to marry you. He, I think he showed me that I'm supposed to marry you. And she said, well, he didn't show me. <laughs> so all of God's plans are a decree. They're, they're immutable. They happen. There's no wisdom against the lord the scripture says like to fight against god is would be very futile you ever had like a little kid that you've already like decided this is where the boundary is going to be but they're like fighting and so forth i remember we had a uh, very disturbed young boy in our church one night he was about nine months old or no he's probably like a year and a half or two years old and he was kind of raised by some troubled parents and had a lot of emotional troubles already at a very young age and he was throwing a temper tantrum and I just held him nicely and I just told him God loves you and he kept fighting and struggling and so forth and after a while he realized that he wasn't going to win <laughs> I wasn't going to hurt him I was of no danger I was going to you know I'm I'm holding you in a nice loving way but I'm not going to allow you to hurt yourself or continue to have a temper tantrum I'm going to win and you're not and before long he was asleep and and enjoying the peace of God uh you know God has decrees and he's he's going to win Okay so that leads to another subject called the ways of God so if I were to say you should be studying the Bible to know the ways of God, who knows what I mean by that? Who said? More than his attributes. Attributes is another subject. Uh, we could say God's immutable, God's uh, providential, God's sovereign, he's infinite, he's holy. We can study the attributes of God. But the ways of God would come out of the attributes of God, but they're a separate subject. How he operates, how he functions. Specifically, how God brings about his eternal decrees. So, for, for instance, uh, I was encouraging somebody to study Gideon this week. Because, um, you know, for instance, there's uh, many people have a problem where they might have a, the kind of relationship with their own natural family 
where they let their own natural family hold them back from going forward with God. Like, does everyone here have the perfect Christian family and the perfect Christian parents who constantly challenge you to grow way more than you ever would grow if they weren't around? No, no, nobody here has that, right? <laughs> right? And your parents are like the model Christians who, no. So all of us uh, have to kind of evaluate, uh, you know, where do I keep, where do I keep uh, my family's opinions in this process, right? So where's, what's a good thing to first do is study the people in the Bible who had that same problem. You know, God sends an angel to Gideon and he says, Oh, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. What's funny about that statement? Where, what was Gideon doing at the time? Hiding, hiding. He was hiding, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know that's that's you know the angel saying something kind of ironic, right? Like, hey, thou really mighty man of valor, what are you doing hiding back behind all that? <laughs> the wine vats there and stuff. Like, are you a little scared? <laughs> right. So he first gives him encouragement by how he greets him. But then Gideon actually, go, go through the story for yourself. Gideon has to overcome 10 specific things about his parents' generation's walk with God in order to fulfill what God's called him to do. Gideon's father is actually his number one problem. And uh, the Bible's full of, you know, Mary and, and Jesus' brothers, James and and uh jude and and come and try to take jesus into custody right and they say jesus your mother and brothers are outside right what does jesus say yeah more give me more than more detail than that more more accuracy he he no he points yeah that's part of it yeah he points at the disciples and he says whoever hears god's word and does his will. In other words, you know, my, my mom is poorly informed at this moment. Now, that's kind of interesting because an angel had appeared to, to Mary. You'd think if you had a baby, I, I don't know what all you ladies know, but if you had a baby uh, when you were still a virgin, that would probably be a little convincing. <laughs> right? That would probably lift your faith in who this person is. Yet, Jesus was going against the religious teaching of what the people thought the Bible said in his day, not against what it actually said. <coughs> but what the Hebrews taught the Bible said is that when Joseph had passed away, that Jesus was supposed to stay home, take over his father's business, support his mom until she passed away to her old age, and disciple his brothers until they had wives and businesses and families of their own. And Jesus had gone off to follow God instead. And his mother and brothers didn't like it. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to let their manipulations and their guilt trips and everything else hold me back from what I'm called to do. The people, the community I'm building... Because the Christian community is supposed to be a group of people who've covenanted together to study God's word, to hear his word, and to do it as a way of life. 
and anything else for understanding a Christian church or community is, is turning the church into a social club. We go because we've always gone. But are the people that you're fellowshipping with, is that what motivates their life? Like, they're diligent students of God, studying more fully all the ways of God, and living a life to do it together, submitted to one another, where you don't call the shots in your own life anymore. God calls them, and your brothers and sisters, we call them together. You know, one of the things I like about how we do what we call plurality of leadership is, you know, I've been a Christian 43 years, but I have to obey the other elders of our church about lots of things and the, and the other leaders all the time. I don't get my way about lots of stuff. In event, it doesn't take a whole lot of maturity to begin to see that if you get your way all the time, it'll destroy you. You, you want to put yourself in a context where you're not getting your way all the time. right all right so that's god's ways are how does god take a person and bring them into the the more and more godliness more and more christ-likeness more and more god's plan for their life more and more fruitfulness and so forth more and more wisdom knowledge and productivity how does god get the person from point a to to that first john chapter three says it has not yet appeared what we shall be, that, but we know that when we see him, we will become like him. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. So we're actually always becoming something. And are, and are we motivated to become more pure like Christ? And is that a big attitude and motivation of our heart? Like, are we saying, in the, like, God, I got to be more like you? Do we really hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do we need more of God like we need, like a junkie needs a fix? Like, do I, I got to have more of God? How many of us, don't raise your hands, would say that actually is the kind of motivation that God's putting in your spirit where it's like this, I've got to have more of you, God, and it's really a strong desire. Now, has anybody ever, like, gone without food for a couple of days? You get, you get like, so you get pretty motivated, right, <laughs> about food, right? I mean, I don't, what, I, like, do you have that kind of a hunger or thirst for more of God? I would say that our contemporary Christianity is actually kind of designed to lull that to sleep and to cause you to lose it over time. When in fact, it should be something growing. I'm, I've uh, thought about someday writing a book about the unstated doctrines of American Christianity that we would never admit we have. But if you talk to most Christians have been Christians for a long time, there's this kind of unstated assumption that it, you will be zealous for God and hungry and, and, and pushing for more of God and taking the kingdom by storm, violent men enter the kingdom by force, Jesus said. You'll do that when you're a baby Christian but over time, you'll become as passive and lukewarm and complacent as we are. <laughs> Isn't that the subtle doctrine that actually r r runs our churches? You'll become kumsi, kumsa, humho. It's not all that important. I do a little, you know. <laughs> Chris was telling me that some uh, some friends of his. We're really surprised that he went to two Bible studies in one week. <laughs> like, like, wow, that's over the top. Like, oh, my God. 
You know, like if you told, like you told, I read my Bible every day, like, like every day. Are you kidding? You know, like what? All right. So that's God's ways. Uh, next, let's talk about uh, laws and ordinances. Um, so we've covered this probably before. It's hard to know which ones I've covered at Cedarville and so forth. But God's Ten Commandments are, who knows what chapters they appear in? Off the top of your head. Exodus 20. And Deuteronomy 5. Everyone's shy. To, like, it's not cool to be the one in the know. So no one wants to say when they know. All right. Uh, if, yeah, so Deuteronomy actually means the second giving of the law, partly because the Ten Commandments are repeated word for word. Okay? Now, um, the law ha has both the, the commandments, but then how are the commandments, uh, how does the Bible help us understand the commandments? So let's put it that way. Some of you should know the answer to this. Case laws. Case laws. They're called statutes or ordinances. So when you read, uh, like in Psalm 19, I love your statutes or ordinances, they're hypothetical case laws. So Leviticus 18, for instance, is a whole chapter about what thou shalt not commit adultery means. So it you know, warns against uh, a man lying with a man, a woman lying with a woman. It warns against lying with an animal. It warns against lying with your father's mother or your father's wife, your stepmother. All kinds of things that most of us would consider like disgusting, right? But that's what thou shalt not commit adultery means, because adultery is murdering the family. In fact, if you study divorce, you'll find out that in most divorces, somebody committed adultery along the way. Right? And if you ever want an interesting book to read, there's a book called The Case Against Divorce by Diane Medev, and she was a Christian uh, psychologist, counselor, who started in the 50s getting permission from her, uh, the couple she counseled. She had them sign waivers that allowed her to track their children and their children's children. And she found out that the people who, who worked hard at counseling and saved their marriages, their kids turned out pretty healthy. And in almost all cases, the kids of divorce turned out very unhealthy emotionally, uh, you know, they had higher incidence of not being able to keep jobs, much higher incidence of drug addiction and alcohol addiction, much higher divorce rates themselves, much higher emotional problems and so forth. But our culture says, oh, the kids won't be harmed by your divorce. They'll adjust. They'll get used to it. Right? You know, in the, in the neighborhoods we minister in, most kids are raised being passed back and forth between the parents because... You know, like the the dad gets them on Thursdays and the mom on, you know, that kind of thing. And, and most people are brought up in our culture to believe that the kids won't be harmed by that. Because that's, all cultures have its lies, but its lies have to be, you have to study out empirically whether the lie really is true. And what this lady proved is that uh, people who had a good marriage, the pat, in general, their kids had an easier time uh you know, arriving at uh, being healthy adults. And people who had terrible marriages and divorces, their kids had a much harder time being emotionally healthy. 
I always tell people this and when we do a lot of premarital counseling and so forth and I'm, you know, the thing I'm most happy about, all the things that, that have happened in, in our ministry is that my wife and I have been discipling people since the early 70s and we've never had a couple that we counseled get be divorced. We've never even had a couple that we counseled have a difficult marriage. Uh, that is that, you know, like we have lots of people who join our churches already having a lot of marital problems. But in terms of people that we actually discipled before they got married, we've never even had someone who had a difficult marriage. And, uh, and the kids generally turn out pretty well from that formula, you might say. So Leviticus 18 is case laws, for instance. Um, Leviticus 23 is also case laws. Who knows what case laws those are about? Number 16. The Sabbath. The Sabbath. Like thou should the keep holy the Lord's day or the Sabbath day. Leviticus 23 is all about the Sabbath day and the festivals and it, what, what it means to have set apart special days as a community to God. In America today, like people work on the Lord's Day and just as much, you know, miss church or take restaurant jobs and store jobs. And do you know there was a time when restaurants and stores weren't even open on the Lord's Day when we had a more Christianized culture? And of course, because most evangelicals are what's called antinomianism, most evangelicals don't even know the Lord's Day is all that important. Lots of wonderful Christian people who love God don't know that the Lord's Day is anything they should be fighting for and telling their boss, I'm not going to work on that day. I'm going to spend time with the community of Christians worshiping God on that day. It's the Lord's Day. So the, the Bible has case laws. Jesus, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when, in Matthew 5, 17, when Jesus says, uh, don't think I came to abolish the law, but to put it into force. And he goes on to talk about whoever keeps and upholds the commandments will be called great in the kingdom, but whoever teaches people not to follow the commandments, that is to be antinomian, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Then he actually gives us some case laws. Who can remember what some of them were? Murder. Yeah, what does he say about the case? What does he say about murder? Don't be angry at your brother or call him an airhead. Right. So he's actually saying you've heard you're not supposed to cause, commit murder, but if you get to the things inside yourself that are the root of that, anger, and what what is when he says you call him a raka or what does that mean? An airhead. You said that, but what is why is that murder? You're devaluing his life. You're saying you're less than me. You knucklehead, right? That's what you're saying. You're a knucklehead, I'm, and I'm not. Do you know how many people try to raise themselves up by putting other people down? A lot. A lot. You know, we have a, Sam can tell you, I don't know if Sam was old enough to remember this, but his uh, big brothers would. You know, Edwin certainly would. When Edwin first came here, uh, one of the hardest things that he went through was uh, when he went to, to public schools, the African-American, the black American students were the ones that picked on him. Not the white students. Why? They called him Jungle Bunny and have you seen any rhinoceroses lately and would kick his books over and stuff. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to put someone below them in their mind. It's a very real phenomena that sociologists track. People who don't feel very good about themselves often try to put someone else down. 
passive-aggressive behaviors and so forth, right? And Jesus is saying, if you even say to your brother, you're, you know, like if you demean your brother, then you've, you've, you've sinned against the image of God in him. You've devalued your brother. I, 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 almost every pastor I know will, will take us aside and say, you, you guys, like, why do you guys invest like three and four and five hour meetings with people who are really troubled and, and why do you guys do this discipleship thing over and over and over again? And I said, because they're made in the image of God, because they're worth it. Right? <laughs> but mo- I'm almost all American pastors that I know would think that we're nuts the way we go about helping people more labor-intensively. How many people have ever been to a church where the idea of your pastor hanging out with you two and three hours a week and doing a Bible study with you every week and, and is not normal? There's lots of churches that don't do that, right? But if Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, what, do you, what, how, what could that possibly mean except do what he did to the disciples? Otherwise, like his words don't mean anything. His words have to mean, follow the pattern I did with you, which was, you know, again, Mark 3, 14. It says he appointed the 12 that they might be with them. First thing I do when I see someone that I feel has a lot of potential is, like, come hang out with us. Spend time. Let's, let's do lunch. And then I tell them, I can't wait till you graduate from college, so you're buying after that. <laughs> as soon as you graduate from college, you're the one that's fanned. All right. Uh, next is word pictures. Um, so who knows what uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, there, there's a name for those bo- books. There's two different, the wisdom books and... Poetical books or poetry books, right? Now, Hebrew poetry has couplets and triplets, which is just a couplet is a way of stating the same thing or stating the opposite, right? So, um, like it says, like uh, the like the dog that returns to its vomit is the fool that repeats its folly. Now, every one of us has probably had a little dog or something, right? And little dogs always go back and eat their own vomit, right? Isn't that disgusting? And it's basically saying if you do the same thing over and over again, it's like that. Now, what, why is that so powerful? Because it's a powerful image, right? Like we've all seen a little doggy that goes back and eats its vomit. And we've all, like, had trouble not vomiting ourselves, right? Like I raised four kids, I could handle I I could handle blood, you know, black eyes. I just vomit. I can't be in the. I just got to get into another room. Like get out of there. <laughs> I can't even be in the room. And uh, right, it's gross, right? It's trying to give you a powerful word image. Like when are you going to stop doing the same thing over and over again? Right. So uh, 
not so the Bible often speaks in terms of what's called images or word pictures. So some give give us some ideas of that. Give give me some examples. Like Jesus says that he is the door. Right? So that's a pretty that's a word picture, isn't it? We all know what we do with doors, right? Hopefully we don't run into them. <laughs> Hopefully we open and close them as we go in and out of them. Instead of just like... Right? What are some other word pictures in the Bible? There's millions of them. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is symbolized by the word picture of a dove. Why? Doves are peaceful and pure. They're usually white. It speaks of purity, right? What are some other word pictures in the Bible? There's lots of them of Jesus, of course. As a as a picture of what? Jesus' body and blood. Right. Okay. Sheep and the shepherd. Sheep and the shepherd. John 10, he calls himself the, the shepherd of the sheep. The lamb of God, which should make us think of what? The Passover lamb, which is Exodus chapter 12. So when John 1, when he says, behold, the lamb of God, every Israelite was raised hearing the Passover uh, read every year in the synagogues and in their home. And they would have known the 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 lamb had to be what there were some things that you couldn't just do any old lamb right what was the lamb had to be a year old. one year old well the lamb wasn't unleavened and the bread was <laughs> what's that unblemished like blameless right and of course that that's a word picture in itself of perfect right like you couldn't just uh you couldn't use, like, uh, for the sacrifice, we're going to use the lamb that's not doing so well. Right? You, the point was you had to use the best lamb, the one that was the most valuable, the one that you'd want to hang on to to, uh, to you know, to become the, the ram that you use for stud or the you that you use for, uh, for having children and so forth. Right? It wasn't just any lamb. What well, says he that they he gave them skin, so he killed some animal. Okay. Yeah, which speaks of without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So there's lots of word pictures. The whole Bible is full of word pictures. So in that, so, um, so who knows what a mosaic or a montage or a collage is? So somebody look at John ten. In the, since we mentioned John ten. Jesus actually uses more than one. Oh, you okay? Go ahead. What's a montage or a collage or? So, like a mosaic, usually made of like pieces of glass or stone or whatever, small pieces that are colored, and then you put them together. Right. You use smaller items, often tile, glass, stone. It could be even just newspaper colors or whatever. You could make a mosaic out, and then you make a larger picture out of all these little pictures, right? And the Bible does that all the time as a way of communicating. So, um, you know, it's one thing to say I'm thirsty, but it might be another thing to use the, the metaphor of, uh, you know, um, a desert, 
or something, you know. It, it's creates, it causes the thing to be communicated in a more um, uh, ephemeral, more uh, emotional, uh, more complete way. Now, all that's to say is that biblical imagery always goes from Genesis to Revelation. So, for instance, in Genesis 1, it says every seed brings forth fruit according to its kind, right? And from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, seeds, things having the seed in them, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, that's only a tough question for evolutionists. According to the Bible, the chicken came first with the eggs in it already. <laughs> and of course there was actually if you would be like looking in a mirror where you, you know when you ever line up two mirrors and you can see the images going back and getting smaller that chicken had the eggs in it that was for the next chickens that had the eggs in them that for the next chickens and, you know add, and add infinitum um, seed is a major issue in the Bible so it's used all over the place right Abraham is told that in his seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed, right? His servants swear on it. Yeah, and the seed refers to who in the Bible? Who's Abraham's seed? Christ. Christ? Did I hear something else? Both Isaac is Abraham's seed and Christ is Abraham's seed. It's got more than one fulfillment. Solomon is David's seed and Christ is David's seed, right? And every seed brings forth its own kind. So if you're going to be a fisher of men, what's the biggest issue that you face? Being a good seed. What, being a good seed. Letting God make you into a good seed. What did he, he told the Pharisees, woe is you, because you'll travel all over the Roman Empire to make one proselyte, and then you turn him into twice as much of a son of hell as yourselves. Can you, can you actually, when you're alone with God, say, boy, I'd like people to become just like me? That's God's goal for you. God's goal for you is that you would say, man, if they were more like Sam Awante, they would be released. That would be awesome. Right? That's what we actually want to pursue. Paul said, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Can you say that? Can you tell the guys where you work? Just, just do it how I do it. Just be an imitator of me. Live your life my way. You know, approach worship, Bible study, prayer meetings, fellowship, marriage, financial management. Follow my model. Every seed brings forth its fruit of its own kind, right? So are there areas in our lives where we go, like, wow, I wouldn't that want that model to be what gets reproduced? Of course there are. So that's part of the Christian walk, right? So Paul tells the Corinthians, the most immature church in the New Testament, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. The Ephesians church is the most mature church in the New Testament. What does he tell them in Ephesians 5.1? Right. So he's by he, so he the, the Ephesians who are a little more mature are ready to hear be an imitator of God. 
All right, so uh, we're, we're not going to have enough time. to. So emphasis 3B on the page there are some biblical word pictures of the church. Salt, and I'm just going to talk, we're not going to be able to look them all up. Salt is uh, used because salt stops corruption. It is definitely biblical, the most to understand, like the, Jesus says, if the salt becomes uh, tasteless so that it gets trampled underfoot by men. What's the word picture he's doing? <coughs> is in other words, if the world is, is more prevalent than the church. Anybody think we have a Christianity like that right now in our culture? Who's gaining ground on, on the culture, the church or the world? Who's been doing so? How long does that go back? I would say that goes back in America at least 350 years. Our Christianity is becoming, has become less potent, less biblical, and less influential gradually since about the Great Awakening in the 1760s. Does anybody, can anybody think of a time in, in church history that was like that or in Bible history? Judges. The book of Judges is very similar to that, yeah. You know, so if you take the time of Joshua in the taking of the land, Judges covers a 400-year period of Israel's declining and backsliding. And every once in a while, God sends a judge and there's a little bit of revival. We had the first great awakening, which uh, gave us our war for independence. We had the second great awakening that eventually ended slavery. But little by little, our Christianity has become more and more impotent more and more pietistic, more and more retreatist, less and less able to be the salt of the earth. Do you think that, that any, any great thinkers in America today go, man, we need to get a hold of the Christians to figure out what's going wrong here? No. We need, like, we, we've got a big problem with divorce in this culture. Why don't we consult the Christian marriages? Why, why when, isn't the world saying that? Because the Christian marriages aren't that great. Some people would argue that our divorce rate is as high as the atheists or higher. And the atheists are quick to point that out, by the way, on their websites. And they also like to hear about it about the kids that like, a lot of children who are raised in Christian homes aren't sticking with the faith once they get to be like 18 or so. Right. Like if it's not that effective, your own kids won't do it, why should we? Yeah, estimates are, depends on who you're studying, but there's groups that track these things. Estimates are that anywhere from 35 to 70% of kids raised in Christian homes are leaving the faith between the ages of 18 and 24 or so. And most are never coming back. 85% of people who, become, who are freshmen at a secular university who say, I'm a Christian in their, fre their first weeks of their freshman year, by their senior year, they will say, I'm not a Christian. Right, And that's why you find the most radical Christian groups on secular campuses, because you'll either get serious with God or you'll lose your faith. You'll either come out of college way stronger in your faith or you'll lose your faith. Right? And that depends on what kind of Christian group you're in and what kind of things you study. And, uh, you know, are, are you going to study Christian worldview and apologetics things? Or are you going to just... Uh, study biology or are you going to study some creationist stuff while you're studying biology except you know etc 
Lampstand. What's a lampstand? Why is that a biblical metaphor of the church? It's a collection of little lights to make a big light. Right. They didn't have like, uh, you know, like LED uh, lumens and so forth. A a lampstand was a place where you put lots of little lights. So look at all the scriptures I give you. You can take some time to look these up on your own. But uh, we, you know, we did all that uh, the fall of 2016. A nation. So what, what the Bible is actually saying is we're supposed to be a city within the city, a culture within the culture, a nation within the nation. Do we have a different culture than they have around us? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know that our that our <coughs> culture is distinctively Christian enough. Body of Christ, what's a you know like a body does what? What the head wants it to do, right? Anybody ever had a problem where your body's not doing what your head wants it to do? Like we, there is, there are such, there are, there are problems. I had. Uh, in my in my life and in John Bradbury's life, that happened for uh, with, with your case with alcohol, with me drugs, but some of us might have had some sort of problem where we had uh, epilepsy or maybe we had like uh, a nervous condition or whatever. But yeah, it's quite possible that your body's not going to do what your head wants it to do. One of the things as you get older, like I quit playing. I I used to play full court basketball three and four times a week. I used to wonder if if, uh, if I almost had an idol of loving to play basketball. I really liked to play. We had a church league team, and we played several times a week. I loved basketball. And eventually I had to quit playing because I, you know, was taking like 15 pain pills just to play because my back was, you know, I hurt my back when I was 18. And uh, it was getting too bad, and I had to. I eventually had to quit playing. Be, but what the, what I eventually had to do is I had to quit playing because my body wasn't lo- any longer doing what my head wanted it to do. Did you ever notice that very few athletes make it past round 40 in the pros and stuff? Right. Because their body can't do what their head's telling it anymore, right? So the body of Christ, the imagery, do we act as a team the way Christ would have us act? Are our priorities his priorities? Is he the head calling the shots? You know, you know, today we have the doctrine of joining a church, but I actually think biblically it's about being jointed because a joint is a place where two, uh, two parts come together and they're actually uh, tied together by a thing called a ligament. And the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for ligament is actually uh, the word for covenant is the word for sinew or ligament. And what, what it's saying is like the, these two forearm bones you have are held to your arm by a covenant. And uh, if you really read the, the wording in Ephesians 4 about the body of Christ carefully, you'll see that actually God joints you in the body of Christ. Like, do you know who you're called to walk with and be a disciple of and who you're eventually supposed to be discipling? And do you know like where you belong? I'd say it's one thing to start attending the right group and start building the relationships, but the process isn't really very far along until you're starting to function all the ways you're supposed to function. You know, are you supposed to play the cello or 
Are you supposed to lead someone to Christ? Or are you supposed to uh, vacuum? Or are you supposed to disciple uh, teenagers? Or what, what, how are you supposed to be functioning in that body? What ways do you receive and what ways do you give? You know, every system in your body receives from the other systems, right? And every part of your body receives from the other parts, right? Your nose wouldn't be doing very good if it wasn't attached to your face. I had that condition once. <laughs> After a car accident. But <laughs> so... Um, God's vineyard is another one. So in John 15, when Jesus talks about the vine and the, and the branches and stuff, do you know he's not saying anything new? The Old Testament says the same stuff over and over again. You remember in, uh, when John, when, uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 that I have listed there, God calls the church, or Paul calls the church God's field and God's vineyard. Jesus tells the parable when he's telling Israel that he's going to bring judgment against Jerusalem and the temple. He talks about how uh, a guy had a vineyard and he planted the vineyard and he expected the vineyard to produce crops. And so he sent his servants to collect the crops and they killed one servant and stoned another one, right? And chased the other one off. So finally he sent his son and they said, this is the heir, let's kill him. And then he says, well, what will God do? He'll, he'll surround that vineyard with armies and tear it down. Jesus is telling that to prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem, which was coming in less than a generation. It has nothing to do with the end times or anything like that. It has everything to do with the fact that God was tired of Israel's not being the vineyard it was supposed to be. Right? The bride of Christ is nothing new, new Testament. It's also Old Testament. The army of God, jo Joshua 5 calls uh, Jesus the captain of the Lord's house. The fellowship or the community of the Lord over the king, over the redeemed. The church, where he, the word ecclesia that we talked about before comes from, does anyone know where it came from before the Bible? The Greek word comes from? The, God? Well, of course, all things come from God, ultimately, I guess. <laughs> That's the same answer. Where did he come from? God. Um, does any, anybody ever study Athens and Sparta and the, the Greeks of the 4th century and Socrates and Plato and all that stuff, right? So the, the, the ecclesia was the called-out assembly in Athens. All, all free men came together to run the city together. They were the community of, of people that owned property and weren't slaves and so forth, and therefore made the governmental decisions in the birthplaces of republics and democracies, which was a very different thing because all other ancient cultures up till then had always been emperor worship, totalitarian, statist. The state controlled the economy. The state controlled the means of welfare. The state controlled all the laws, much like we're getting to more and more. The reason like this uh, national central government's becoming more and more powerful uh, in the last century is such an abomination is because mankind fought to, to end that f for, for generations. 
And little by little by little, we don't have self-government. We don't have family government. We don't have county government. We have national central government. And more and more people want the central government to save us. But whoever you're calling out to save you economically, don't we look to the federal government to solve medical insurance problems and social problems and, and racial problems and everything else? What's the problem with that? They become God. Like whoever you whoever you want to save you must become your Lord. So if we want more government salvation, what will we get? We'll get more government control, which means we have less what? Freedom. Freedom. Right? And that's been the direction of our country for over 100 years now. And you think we're going to change that by voting for Republicans versus Democrats or vice versa? No, it's way bigger than that. The average person doesn't even know what the real issues are anymore. They don't know the history of constitutional limited government or, or any of that kind of stuff anymore, right? Does any, do people know that stuff? No. So the church means the called out assembly. Guess what? Don't we think of salvation as uh, I prayed the sinner's prayer for me and we think about like our Christian walk as being about me and God, right? But the word church actually means like a community you were called into. You were called out of the world and into this functioning body politic called the church. And it's supposed to be a community way of life. Most people don't even know what church they belong to. Or, or in, uh, if they, you know, almost all theologians today agree if there's any one thing that today's Bible-believing Christianity is missing is any theology or concepts of what the church is supposed to be. Most people, we've turned people into consumers of religious meetings, right? I go to this church because I like the worship. I go to this church because I like the teaching. I go to this church because I like the lighting. I go to this church because, really, what's that? <laughs> Um, all right, temple, sanctuary, mountain, hill. Um, if you want to study more about mountains, there's a few podcasts. If you'll scroll back to my uh, Sunday podcast, if anybody wants some help in how to find those. I did, I did like three weeks on, on the symbolism of mountains in the Bible, with two weeks being on mountains in Matthew. Everything that happens in Matthew happens on a mountain for a reason. There's not an important thing in the entire book of Matthew that doesn't happen on a mountain. And it's all supposed to communicate a very important picture. That's why it's the first sermon of, the math, of Matthew is called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, God's tree, fig, olive, oak. The, uh, the people of God are compared to those things all through the Bible. So those are just some biblical pictures of the church. Um, Ephesians 3, I will give you a, uh, October 14th, Andy Gearhart, for, uh, who's a, a lot of you know him. He's a retired Presbyterian pastor who's a member of our church and a wonderful guy. The only guy in our church that's older than me, that's why I really like him. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, he'll, be, he'll be actually here because I'm going to be out of town. Uh, my wife and I are going on a little three-day trip. We, we try to take a three-day vacation every two years, uh, whether we need it or not. And, uh, 
and we're, we're taking a three-day vacation. So we'll be leaving on a Sunday after church and not coming back all the way till Wednesday. Woo! So um, I don't know how much more of this we're going to go through. Um, we'll probably uh, go over next week. We'll look at the Trinity as matrix. We'll probably look at community. Um, we'll look at uh, the Lord's Day a little bit, maybe. So we'll probably spend at least one more week on this outline. So do me a favor. Try not to make us print 35 of them every week. By bring them back. And uh, you know, start putting them in a folder or a notebook. Bring that with you um, when you come. And uh, we will look more at the church. We did, a, I guess, half a year or so on the church and, and so forth. So obviously I can't review it all in one night. Um, it, let me tell you, if you've been brought up, how many people were brought up in what you would consider a Bible-believing kind of Christianity? Does any? Okay, so if you were brought up in a Bible-believing Christianity, um, there's about a 99.9% chance that the kind of Christianity that you were brought in up in didn't study the church very much. Like, and so, in other words, your ideas about what a church is supposed to be are not rooted in Scripture at all. They're just rooted in modern traditions of a church. And uh, getting back to the church actually being biblical in, from, in everything, like what, how we define leadership, how the leadership functions, how we produce new leadership, what the mission of the church is, what the day-by-day -day community lifestyle of the church is, all of those kind of things need a rethink. And we, you know, and we do a lot of that at Grace Christian Fellowship, and I hope you'll consider journeying with us in that respect. Uh, it's, it's such a bad situation right now. As you know, we have this concept called foundational uh, books and intermediate and advanced books and so forth. We have not been able to find one good book about the church in, in modern times at all. Uh, we, we use four or five books about the church, uh, one of which covers some of the Lord's Day liturgical issues about the church, some of it, one of which covers the lifestyle of community in the church, uh, one or two of which it covers making disciples in the church. Uh, why, another one covers why it's important to covenantally member with the church. But the truth of the matter is most of what's going on in the church today is not very biblical nor biblically thought, studied. And we're trying to say there are biblical patterns of everything. And one of the most missing ingredients is any serious study about what the church is supposed to be. And restoring that is a necessary stepping stone to influencing the culture for Christ. The, culture will, the Christianity of our culture must of necessity be impotent. You know what that means, hopefully. That means uh, unable to reproduce. Uh, it, because the, the ideas about the church are more developed in American marketing uh, and business models than they are in biblical models. And until we restore what a biblical church is, I would say that your 95% your of your Christianity is actually wasting your time. In terms of, and you, you may be able to study some things about scripture or grow or whatever, but without rethinking the church, you can't actually become effective for Christ or fruitful for Christ. And I, we've, we've long since given up on the idea that churches are supposed to turn the world upside down and change cultures. 
but churches are really supposed to turn the world upside down. And it's supposed to start with the church turning your world upside down. And the depth in, of in experience that you've had with God can go a hundred times deeper than you know it at this point. And if that happens to you, you'll become a world-changing force. So let's end in uh, prayer. Since you got the pizza, you can close us in prayer. All right.